0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning to all you folks joining us online. We're glad you're with us this morning. Grab your Bible or whatever you brought that you have your Bible on this morning and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the fifth chapter, Matthew chapter 5. We're working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew uh, in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And when we came together last week, we began a very powerful section in Matthew's Gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. And I told you that when I think of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, I I have my own way of referring to that. I I think of that section of of Matthew's gospel being a section that we could call Just Say No to Religion. Just Say No to Religion. I say that because when Jesus came into the world, uh, many of the people that He encountered, and this was especially true of the Jewish people, Uh, had reduced their relationship with God to nothing more than just the following of rules and rituals without any involvement of the heart. And that's a great definition for religion. I know that uh, we get a little confused about the word sometimes because the word in and of itself is not a, a bad word, but when religion has been reduced to nothing more than just following a list of rules and rituals with no involvement of the heart, that's not a good thing. And here's what we all need to understand. Jesus has zero, everyone say zero, zero tolerance for that. Jesus has zero tolerance for that kind of uh, religious activity. One of the most powerful places in Matthew's gospel is the 23rd chapter, because in the 23rd chapter, uh, Jesus talks about how He feels about people whose lives are just bound up in that kind of religion that I just described, just the following of rules and rituals with no involvement of the heart. He says in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, the very first part of the verse, he says, everything they do is done for men to see. And that's why Jesus had such a problem with the religious leaders, because he looked through their, their lives, he saw their hearts, and he said that they're just all about show. He says everything they do, they just do to be seen by men. There's no sincerity there. Their hearts are a long way from God. It's all about action and not attitude. It's all about uh, conduct and not character. That's what he was saying. A little bit later in Matthew 23, he describes religious people like this. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And this is a theme we're going to see all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus confronts this kind of hypocrisy, and He does it in particular here in the Sermon on the Mount. He exposes that hypocrisy, and He gives us uh, a description of a new and a better way to live. He gives us a description of a new and a better kind of life, righteousness, a kind of right life. And He begins with this first part of Matthew chapter 5 that's called the Beatitudes and the word beatitude just comes from a Latin word that means blessed and so we're going to look at it again today we began last week we looked at the first of the Beatitudes we're gonna look at the second one today so if you got your Bibles open to Matthew 5 then go ahead and stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word like we always do hey let me say if you're a guest with us this morning we're so glad to have you in our service I mean that sincerely it's always a joy to welcome guests into our services, and this might seem a little odd, but we do this every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service every week, so we stand in reverence and respect for God's Word when we do it because that's the model that we find in the Scriptures in the Old Testament in particular. So you follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about verse 4. <clears throat> now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him, and He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, there it is. You can be seated this morning, and we always ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Now, when we began this journey through the Beatitudes last week, I told you that there are two fundamental things we have to understand about this passage of Scripture, and I put them in your outline insert this weekend just as a reminder. The first one is this. What we see here is God promises happiness that's real. In the Beatitudes, we see that God promises happiness that's real. And I told you last week I'll be the first person to say that on the surface that sounds really shallow and superficial. God offers happiness. God wants you to be happy But what we need to understand is the meaning of that word blessed there in the Beatitudes that Jesus uses nine different times. The word blessed in the original language of the New Testament, which is the Greek language, is the Greek word makarios. Now, most Bibles translate it as blessed, but the truth is the closest English equivalent to that word is the word happy. And so you could actually substitute the word happy for blessed and you would have the same meaning. But it's not happy In the sense that we normally think of happiness because we think of happiness as kind of just a feeling or emotion that we have when things are going well, when something good happens. What Jesus is talking about here and what God promises is much deeper than that. He's talking about a deep level of inner contentment that is not affected by the circumstances of life. And so when Jesus says... Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, or blessed or happy are those who mourn. He's talking about a blessing. He's talking about a happiness that's something deep down inside of us that's like an anchor in our lives that helps us to experience peace and contentment no matter what happens around us, no matter what happens on the outside of us. And so God promises happiness that's real. The second thing I told you, and I'll remind you of this morning is that real happiness comes in unexpected ways. That's the clear message of the Beatitudes. Real happiness comes in unexpected ways. We, for the most part, think that happiness is a result of our actions. We do certain things and the result is happiness. But what Jesus is telling us is that this happiness that's real, this deep down contentment in our souls, does not come as a result of our actions, it comes as the result of our attitudes. And so, really, the Beatitudes are the attitudes of blessing, the attitudes of happiness. Now, last week we said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was the first attitude. Today, we're going to look at verse 4, Matthew 5, 4, where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's the second attitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's try to understand that on a deeper level. In the same way we did last week, let's just ask some questions, a series of questions. You can write these down in your notes. The first question is this, what does Jesus mean by blessed are those who mourn? That's a verse or a statement that's really easy to misunderstand because we read that and we hear that, and the first thing we think is that Jesus is talking about mourning over a loss, that there's a blessing that comes And the blessing is comfort because he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There's a blessing of comfort that comes to those when they are mourning or grieving or sorrowful over some kind of a loss. Now, I want you to listen to me close. It's really clear that the Bible tells us in a variety of different places that God comes alongside of us and provides comfort to us when we are grieved and when we're sorrowful and when we're mourning over some kind of a loss, but that is not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. That's not the kind of mourning that He's talking about. To understand the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about, you have to understand that Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, are connected. They are connected. One leads to the other. Now, last week we saw that being poor in spirit means that you recognize on your own Based solely on what you have to offer God, you are spiritually bankrupt and without hope. This is the truth for all of us. On my own, I can come to God on my own and I can offer Him the very best that I have to offer the very best of my morality, the very best of my honesty, the very best of my faithfulness, the very best of all of the goodness of my life, only to find out that it falls far short of having a relationship with God, of of enabling me to have a relationship with God. The truth is I'm spiritually bankrupt on my own, and so I have to come to God recognizing my bankruptcy, come to him like a beggar pleading for his mercy and his love and his grace and his forgiveness. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The great illustration of this I told you last week is the parable Jesus told about the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's in the Gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter, It begins in verse 9, and Luke begins the parable by saying, to some who were confident of their own righteousness, Jesus told this parable. And then he tells about a, a Pharisee who would have been a religious man and a tax collector who would have been viewed as a sinner who went to the temple to pray. You remember the story? And the Pharisee, the religious man, began to pray like this. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So his prayer was all about himself and all about his goodness. In contrast, Jesus said, the tax collector stood at a distance. The tax collector wouldn't even allow himself to look up to heaven. The tax collector beat his breast, beat his chest, and prayed like this. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the point... Jesus makes in the parable, he says it was the tax collector who went home justified before God, not the Pharisee. It was the sinner who went home justified before God, not the religious man. He said, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. you remember the story? And so in that parable, and in particular in the tax collector, we see a perfect picture of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. He shows us What it looks like to be poor in spirit, because that tax collector was spiritually bankrupt, and he was mourning, sorrowful over what caused him to be spiritually bankrupt, and that was the reality of his sin. He was sorrowful over his sin. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what Jesus is talking about, friends, when he talks about those who are mourned. The tax collector recognized he was spiritually bankrupt. He recognized it was because he was a sinner. That's why he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was sorrowful over his sin. And that's what it means when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about being sorrowful over our sin. Now... Let me try to explain to you how that works in a little bit of an unusual way. I hope you came this morning ready to do a little bit of digging in to the Bible today. Hold your place in Matthew chapter 5, and I want to hear your pages turning in your Bible to the right until you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you're not that familiar with your Bible, and that's okay, here we are in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. So it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. When you get to 2 Corinthians, find chapter 7. And when you find chapter 7, I want you to scroll down, and we're going to read together verses 8, 9, and 10. I'm going to read this, then I'm going to explain the context of these words. This is what the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians, writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. He's writing to the church, so he's writing to a bunch of Christians, he's writing to a bunch of believers, and he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Now listen close. He says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And then he says in verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Stop right there. All right, everybody look up here and listen to me close. The Apostle Paul had a very deep, close, personal relationship with the church in Corinth. Paul planted a lot of churches, and he provided leadership for a lot of churches in the New Testament. He spent 18 months of his life in the city of Corinth. 18 months. That was a long ministry for Paul. not the longest ministry he had in any one place, but that was a long ministry for him. And while he was there, he planted the church in Corinth. But when 18 months had gone by, it was time for him to leave. And when he left, he promised the church that he would come back to see them again. But here's what happened. Not long after he left, he got word that there was something really bad going on in the church. He got word. This is the specifics. He got word that there was sexual sin going on in the church. Note that. In the church. There were people in the church involved in sexual sin. And if that wasn't bad enough, this is what really troubled his heart. What really troubled his heart is that everybody in the church knew about it, but nobody was doing anything about it. Nobody was confronting it. So there was a sexual sin that was going on in the church. Everybody knew about it, and they were just looking the other way. Well, Paul was so so troubled by this, so unhappy about this, that he sat down and he wrote them a letter. Now, I want you to listen to me close because this is where it could get confusing. The letter that Paul wrote to them, this first letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, it came from the heart of the Apostle Paul, so no doubt it was filled with really good teaching, really sound doctrine, sound instruction, but it was not an inspired letter. Do you know what I mean when I say that? It was not a letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so it never found its way into the New Testament. This first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth is not 1 Corinthians. Now, here's how we know that he wrote the letter. If you just make this reference in your notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says, this is in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes these words. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. What letter? Wasn't talking about the letter that they were reading. He was talking about a previous letter. And the basic content of that letter is in those verses, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. And so that was the first letter Paul wrote. Well, Paul went on and he continued his ministry, but he got word that the church still had troubles. They still had issues with sexual immorality in the church. They had division in the church. They had factions in the church. They had um, uh, problems with regard to spiritual gifts. They had problems with regard to the way they did the Lord's Supper. You just read through 1 Corinthians sometimes, you see that this was a troubled church with one problem after another, but Paul had this deep place in his heart, this sensitive place in his heart for this church, and he knew about these things because people reached out to him from. From the church and told him. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11. You can see that in First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse one. Word, Paul's referencing, the fact that word has come to him about these things that are happening. That's not unusual. This is my third church that I've served in my life in 37 years. And when I left my first church, guess what? People from my first church called me and said, I don't know much about, I don't know about this new preacher, or, you know, I'm not happy about this. When I left my second church and I came here to my third church, people from my second church called me and said, I don't know about that preacher, this new preacher. And I'm sure that when I came here, people, some of you probably called the preacher before me and said, I don't know about... That's what happens. And so Paul sat down and he wrote a second letter to the church in Corinth. Now listen, that second letter became 1 Corinthians because it was an inspired letter by God. All right? Paul continues on in his ministry, and uh, he continues to hear word about trouble in the church in Corinth, and it breaks his heart. And so word comes back to him that they're still having problems, but it's gotten even worse now because along with all the other things, with the immorality and the division and all the strife that they have internally, what's happened now is some false teachers have crept into the church and began to teach false doctrine and are leading people away. There's spiritual mutiny going on in the church. And so here's what Paul does. Listen to me close. He sits down, and what do you think he does? He writes him a letter. Now, this is the third letter. The third letter is just like the first letter. It came from the heart of Paul. No doubt it was filled with sound doctrine, sound instruction, but it was not an inspired letter. It did not find its way in the New Testament. The third letter is not 2 Corinthians. And the reason why we know this letter is because of this passage we just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. Most Bible scholars, when they talk about this letter, they call this the severe letter, Okay. The letter that we're reading about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10, and other verses right here in this section, we just limited ours to those three verses, this is referred to as the severe letter. Now, I want you to look at that passage with me again, and let's remind ourselves of what Paul is saying to these people. He's saying, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, now everybody look up here, why would he do that? How would he cause them sorrow by the letter? Well, because it's the severe letter, Right? because he's really being direct and strong in confronting them about this sin. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, note this, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And then he says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Now, let me just finish the story. Obviously, then at some point later, Paul wrote a fourth letter, and it was inspired, and it became 2 Corinthians. Four letters, two inspired, two not inspired. And what we're talking about here is the third letter that was not inspired, where he confronts them about their sin. And here's what here's what I see here. Paul writes this letter, and see if you can relate to this. Paul writes this letter, and it's harsh, and it's severe, and it's direct and it's strong. And as soon as he sent it, I believe as soon as he sent it, he felt some level of regret. He he said, I don't he said, I did regret it for a little while. You ever been there? Let me ask a question. You ever been there? Now, maybe you did it with a letter, you wrote a letter, but we don't write letters that much anymore. Maybe you wrote an email to somebody. Maybe you sent a text to somebody and it was in an emotional state and, and what you said was absolutely true and it was absolutely what you felt, but you didn't, put any, you didn't put it through a filter. Most normal people go through life with some kind of a filter, right, in their communication. Most normal people, except for all the people that send me letters. Anyway, <laughs> most normal people. Okay, but and, and so as soon as you hit the send button, okay, let's say it's an email. As soon as you sit, hit the send button, you felt some level of regret because you were concerned and worried about how they were going to respond when they read it, right? Right? Or as soon as you posted something on social media, whatever, you know, you felt some level of anxiety, regret. Well, I think that's the way Paul was, and he had that level of anxiety until he found that what the response was, and the response was just what it needed to be. Again, verse 9, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed. Verse 10, godly sorrow leads to repentance. You know what repentance is, right? Repentance is the willingness to turn away from sin and turn to God. And so Paul's confrontation of their sin, in particular the sin of, of allowing these false teachers into the church got their attention and caused them to repent, caused them to be sorrowful over what they had done, the sin that they had committed, and caused them to turn away from that sin and turn back to God. Listen to me, friends. That's what, Paul's, that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And I want you to listen to me close. This is something that absolutely must be a reality on some level of all of our lives if we're gonna live in a right relationship with God. Every one of us at some point in our lives have to come to the realization of what it means to be poor in spirit, that on our own, we're not good enough to have a relationship with God, that on our own, we're spiritually bankrupt. We're spiritually bankrupt because we're sinners, and we have to feel some level of sorrow and grief and mourning over the reality of our sin. And this has to happen in all of our lives if we're going to live in a right relationship with God, and we're going to experience this blessed life, this happiness that Jesus talks about, that's that's that deep down inner contentment that helps us to go through life with an anchor and a rock that causes us to be unaffected by the circumstances of life around us. We can go through horrific circumstances and face lots of trials, but we're still solid and stable in our lives because we've got something real deep down inside of us. This is a very important message. But I'd be lying to you this morning if I didn't tell you that I felt a little bit of anxiety coming to church with this message today because this is not something that most people want to hear. And this is not really a message that you're going to hear in a lot of churches today because the modern-day church today is all about making people feel good. The modern-day church today is all about drawing as big a crowd as possible, and we do that by just tickling people's ears and making them feel good. I'm good. You're okay. You're good. We're all good, right? That's the message. But this is not the message that Jesus delivers especially not here in the beginning of the Beatitudes. Jesus has a strong message for all of us. I was reading a blog this last week. It was written by a guy named Matt Walsh. I don't know if you recognize that name or not. I I, I read it because he kind of is entertaining to me. I don't really agree with everything that he has to say. But he wrote The blog title caught my attention. The blog title was, If You Find It Easy to Be a Christian, You Probably Aren't One. Isn't that a provocative title? If you find it easy to be a Christian, you probably aren't one. And as he went through the article, he basically gave three red flags that might cause us to question the validity of our confession. Three red flags that might cause us to question the validity of our Christian confession and the three red flags are number one your Christianity is easy it's easy so what he means by that honestly is that if you can go through life as a Christian but you never feel any tension that comes from the reality of trying to live A Christian life in a world that's filled with sin and a world that on its own is fallen and separate from God, if you never feel any tension and it's just easy peasy for you to be a Christian, then maybe you need to think about the reality of your confession. The second thing he said, the second red flag he said, is that your Christianity is just a feeling. It's just a feeling. You know, so as long as you feed the feeling, everything is okay, you know. But it's not deep down inside of you. It's not based on conviction or, or hard choices or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's just this happy, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so feeling. The third thing is that he said is a red flag that really speaks to the context of what we're talking about. He said, you might question your confession if it's not penitent. Now, the word penitent is not a word that we use very often in everyday language, but it's a word that means feeling or expressing sorrow over sin. Exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let me just read you something that he wrote in the blog. He said, it was decided at some point in the last 50 years that too many churches were preaching nothing but fire, brimstone, and repentance. Maybe they were. Surely our faith lives shouldn't be consumed by guilt and fear. Now look up here. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. That's not what Jesus wants. He doesn't want us to live our lives of faith consumed by guilt and fear. He goes on to say, but in modern times we have, as is our habit, run all the way to the other extreme. Now we imagine that our faith in God actually insulates us from guilt. The Christian is someone who thinks positively, we like to say, and we happily apply this positive thinking to our own wickedness especially. And we went from focusing on, or excuse me, focusing too much on the prospect of damnation to pretending that we're not at risk of suffering it at all. I think if we must err, we are better erring on the other end of the spectrum, better to feel too much guilt for your sin than none at all. Well, there's some truth to what he's saying, Friends. I might not have expressed it in the exact same words, but there's a great truth there to what he's saying. A huge part of experiencing a right relationship with God and a huge part of experiencing a blessed and a happy life, this blessed and happy life that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes that, remember, is not shallow or superficial in any way, it's something deep down inside of you, is to be genuinely sorrowful over your sin, to recognize the spiritual bankruptcy of your life, and to be sorrowful over the sin that separates you from God, over the sin that affects your relationship with God. Here's a second question. What is the result of this kind of mourning? Well, Jesus answered that question, so this is not difficult. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you mourn over the spiritual bankruptcy and sin of your life, Jesus promises you'll be comforted. And this is where the, uh, the blessing or the happiness is found. Mourners aren't happy because they mourn. This is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to walk around weeping and wailing with our head down and sad all the time. The blessing comes in knowing that your mourning will be comforted. And here's what that comfort means in the context of Matthew 5:4. When you come into the presence of God and you acknowledge the spiritual bankruptcy of your life and you feel genuine sorrow and sadness and mourning over the sin that caused that bankruptcy, then you're comforted by receiving the grace of God through complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. How cool is that? Complete forgiveness. That's what He offers And this is an absolute part of experiencing that forgiveness. In my study this week, I found that while our English Bibles read, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, that's literally the way the verse reads in my NIV Bible. In the original Greek text, remember the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. In the original Greek text, it reads like this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the emphatic use of the word alone emphasizes that the only people who are going to receive the comfort of forgiveness are those who recognize and mourn, feel sorrowful over the reality of their sin. Maybe, listen, think about something with me. Maybe that's why, and, I, and you know what, when May, when May of this year rolls around, I will, be, I will have been serving the local church for 37 years, and this is something I've seen in every church I've served Maybe that's why there are people who come to church, and they hear the message of Christ preach, and it's all about the message of Christ. It's all about the power of God's Word. It's not the messenger. I'm not, I'm not the focal point here. What God has to say in His Word is the focal point. They hear what God has to say, and, they, and it convicts their heart on some level. It draws them to Him on some level, and so they come, and they make some kind of a profession of faith. They have some kind of response to it, but then two or three months down the road, you know what happens? They disappear, and we never see them again. And I'm telling you, This happens happens in every church. It's happened in every church I've served. This is what happens. Sadly, it's a kind of a routine thing. Why? Well, maybe it's because when they came, when they were drawn to Christ and the message of Christ, and they made some kind of a profession, it didn't include any level of recognition or sorrow over the reality of their sin. That's why whenever I tell somebody what they need to know and do in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, the very first thing I tell them is, you've got to admit you're a sinner Can can you receive forgiveness of sin without ever admitting that you're a sinner? This is where it begins. And it's all connected to what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. One last question, and then, uh, Brian, you can come and we'll get ready to close. How do I become a mourner? How do I become a mourner? Well, let me just tell you three things real quickly. First of all, don't resist the Holy Spirit when he calls. Don't resist the Holy Spirit when he brings conviction on your heart. The Holy Spirit, that's what he does. And maybe he's doing that for somebody here this morning, somebody here in the room or somebody listening to me online somewhere. Maybe, maybe he's bringing some level of conviction. Maybe he's reminding you that your life, the way it is right now, is not right, that you've got things in your life that aren't right, that you're living in disobedience to God on some level with things that you're involved in, things that you're doing in your life and you feel this conviction. Well, listen, don't resist it. Because we do that all the time. We resist it by, by just allowing our hearts to be hard. And so we might feel it, but we don't let let the conviction penetrate. We resist it by being arrogant. We resist it by being, yeah, 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 I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most people. Or we resist it by procrastinating. We resist it by saying, yeah, I feel that, I know that, I got this problem, I got this need, but I'm I'm gonna take care of it later. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. If you're feeling something stirring in your heart right now, don't mistake it for something else. The Holy Spirit is trying to get your attention. Don't resist Him. The second way we... Become mourners is, listen, we become mourners when as we read the Word of God. I don't know if you make reading the Bible a part of your life on a consistent level, but you should. If you don't, you should. I read my Bible uh, quite a bit. I read it sometimes devotionally. I probably don't read it enough devotionally, not as much as I should, but I read it a lot primarily to prepare to do what I'm doing this morning, to share it with you. And here's what what happens, and I've been doing this for a long time. I read my Bible, and I've been a Christian for almost 50 years. I read my Bible, and it becomes like a mirror to me. And, you know, I say it becomes like a mirror to me because as I read it, I see myself in it. But I don't usually see myself in good terms. I see myself in bad terms. I see myself in areas where I fall short, where where I'm failing to be the person that God calls me to be. And it convicts my heart makes me feel sorrowful over my sin, which leads to comfort. The third way that we become a mourner is we just pray. And we just pray for our hearts to be broken. As strange as that might sound, we pray for our hearts to be broken. You know, someone once said we need to pray that the Lord would break our hearts with the things that break His heart. What a great thought. Well, let me tell you what would be at the top of the list of what breaks the heart of God. What breaks the heart of God is sin. What breaks the heart of God is rebellion and disobedience. My sin breaks the heart of God. Your sin breaks the heart of God. And so we need to pray that our hearts would be broken as a result as well. You know, the Beatitudes that we're studying, they present the ultimate contradiction to what most people believe in life. When Jesus says... Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Literally, he's saying, happy are the sad. But then he gives the promise, but you'll be comforted. And don't forget that the comfort that he's talking about is not comfort, just somebody coming alongside of you and putting their arm on your shoulder and just being there with you. The comfort he's talking about is the absolute, complete forgiveness of sin which is what gives us the opportunity to live in a fellowship with God, a right relationship with God, and experience the happiness, the real happiness that He promises to all of us. I hope and pray that's the reality of your life this morning. If it's not, I hope and pray that you'll respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when it comes to getting your life right with God. Let's pray.